Today we begin a sermon series from a minor prophet, that prophet is Amos. Turn your Bibles to the book of Amos, there back one chapter, chapter one. And Amos, God is a God who roars. Ancient Israel made the mistake of treating a God who's a roaring lion like a tame tabby cat, which he's not. They became so comfortable with their covenant relationship with God that they felt as if following God's plan was optional. Instead of walking in humble obedience to God, they were greedy for luxury, prejudiced against the poor, and hungry for power. Extravagant offerings and ritualistic religion were substituted for a vital relationship with the living Lord. Well, look at chapter 1, verse 2. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion. He's a roaring lion. Then skip over to chapter 3 and verse 8. We see this image of a roaring lion again. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. As a roaring lion, God confronted his people in the person of Amos. Now, we don't know a lot about Amos, this mid-8th century B.C. prophet, but we can be sure that God called him to stop fig farming and sheep shearing in order to declare the word of God. Amos steps up with unyielding courage and says to ancient Israel, Thus saith the Lord God Almighty. The ancient Israelites had counted on that covenant relationship with God as a guarantee to them that God would always bless them. Their sins didn't matter. And Amos has a different word for them and yet even in the midst of all the roaring at the end in chapter 9, we're told that God will take the remnant, the faithful few of ancient Israel, and restore and bless them even as he punishes the disobedient. The reality is this. The ancient Israelites were so focused on the sins of the surrounding neighbors, the other countries, that they never looked to their own hearts for their own sin. Like looking for the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log in your own. Do you remember the old cartoon when Pooh Bear goes into Rabbit's hole and Rabbit asks him, would you like condensed milk or honey with your bread? Pooh Bear says, never mind the bread, just bring the honey, he says. Well, that lovable bear, he ate, and he ate, and he ate, and finally, Rabbit just gives him the whole jar of honey, and Pooh Bear finishes that jar, and then another jar, and another jar, and another jar, and he eats until all the jars of honey are gone. But as the bloated bear tries to exit the rabbit's hole, he gets his head out, and shall I say, his hiney stays in, and there is no moving that bear. He is stuck. He can't go in. He can't go out. 
the bloated bear is stuck. Rabbit, you remember, gets from the hind end and pushes and pushes and pushes and then tries to rearrange the furniture where the hiney kind of fits as a decoration on the wall. It's quite the scene. I mean, what do you do with the hind end of a honey-filled bear? The situation, the owl says, calls for an expert. And Gopher pops up with that characteristic lisp, and he whispers, Somebody call for an excavation expert, he says. Christopher Robin finally arrives on the scene and says, well, you're just going to have to not eat for a few days, and then you'll be able to fit out the hole, and days pass. And all of a sudden, Gopher pops up again with a lunchbox. A lunchbox, Pooh Bear asks. Remember, he hasn't eaten for days now. It certainly is, Gopher says. Swing shift, you know. It's my midnight snack, he says. Well, what sort of lunch is in that lunchbox, Pooh Bear asks desperately. Let's see here, he says. Summer squash, salmon salad, and succotash and honey. Honey, says Pooh Bear. Oh, no, says Rabbit. He runs out the back hole, runs to the front, and puts up a sign that says, Do not feed the bear. <laughs> well, next, something very interesting happens. I think Pooh Bear is just trying to relate, indeed, to the rodent, because he says in Gopher's own characteristic list, he says, Pooh Bear says, Could you spare a small smack roll? which Gopher replies with a very quizzical look, you ought to do something about that speech impediment, Sonny. <laughs> and Rabbit is just exhausted. Now, what's so ironic about that story is Gopher says to Pooh Bear, you need to do something about your speech impediment. While he always speaks to that characteristic whistling S. Gopher could see in others what he could not see in himself. And I'm really good at seeing your sin, but I have a hard time seeing my own, you see. Well, the, we start out the first point, seven sermons against seven sinful nations. Seven sermons against several, seven sinful nations. This starts all the way back at 1-1 and goes through chapter 2 and verse 5. If Amos had been a major league pitcher, he would not have been the master of the fastball. He would not have been the changeup, but rather it would have been the curveball king. When someone pitches a curveball, the ball appears to be going in one direction, and then it moves in another. And so it is with Amos's preaching. Amos is from Tekoa a little town 10 miles south of Jerusalem. So he's from the southern kingdom, but God calls him to preach in the north to the northern kingdom. And, well, he does so. Though he's a southerner, he goes to the northern kingdom. By now, Israel had been split for 200 years. We're about at 760 B.C. when Uzziah is on the throne in the southern kingdom and Jeroboam II is on the throne in the north. It is the most prosperous time for the northern kingdoms. They are making money hand over foot. Well, thus enters the roaring lion. And he begins to preach to the nations all around them, to 
Aram and Philistia and Phoenicia and Edom. And well, then the ones who are, who are related to them, he goes to Edom, the Amnon, the Moab. And then finally, he actually preaches a seventh sermon against the south, his own people against Judah. So we have these seven sermons against seven sinful nations, and Israel is absolutely loving it. These sermons have a predictable order they go in. Turn back to chapter 1 and verse 6. In chapter 1, verse 6, I want you to see the order. They begin with something like this. Thus says the Lord. The first element in these sermons is an introductory formula. Thus says the Lord. And next, second, there's a statement of certain judgment. Well, look at verse 6 again. For three transgressions of Gaza, these are the Philistines, and for four. For three sins and for four, a statement of judgment. And then the specific charges, number three, follow. Uh, next, uh, look at verse 6. For he says, I will not revoke its punishment because they deported an entire population to deliver it up to Edom, the way they have treated their neighbors. And then there's a pronouncement of the punishment that will follow, verse 7, I will send fire. A pronouncement of punishment to follow. And then the sermon usually closes with another formula. Look at 1.8. Thus says the Lord. The end of verse 8. Says the Lord the God. So as you look at these seven sermons, you follow this predictable path, and this is what you find in these sermons against these other nations. Well, the second thing I want you to see is one sermon against God's sinful people. Now, when Amos preaches against the other nations, the audience is delighted. In fact, when he gets on to their southern cousins, Judah, they are ecstatic. Amen. Hallelujah. Let them have it, they say. And seven is a sign of what? Completeness. In fact, did you notice how many sins? For three sins and for four. Three and four is seven. And so when he does seven sermons and he stops with Judah, they are Amen, hallelujah, you're finished. That's the hymn of invitation. Let's go home. So in verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, they're like, what? Another sermon? They were done. He had preached against all their enemies, even their brethren to the south. And so now, when he starts an eighth sermon, we don't need eight. They stop the amening and they start the old me's because now he's preaching against them. Well, he preaches against their own sins. Well, what does he preach against? First of all, verse 6 of chapter 2, they put a price on human lives. Look what they've done. For three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke his punishment because they sell the righteous for money. And the needy for a pair of sandals. They are influences judges with bribes. Perhaps they're selling those who owe them money into slavery. Maybe they're foreclosing on loans against the poor. Well, the second thing they do is they are trampling upon the poor. Look at verse 7. These who 
it should say trample. The, those who trample after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless, they are like the bully on the playground. They are trampling over the poor. They're treating the poor like dirt. A third thing they're doing, they're sexually abusing the slaves or the servants among them. A, a, a father and a son have the same woman. It's sexual abuse against the poor, the slave girl. This would break the covenant of Exodus. And fourthly, in verse 8, the law said in Exodus that if a man gave you his outer garment for assurance, if it was collateral, at night he could come and get his coat back and use it to keep himself warm during the night. In the morning you could take the coat back for collateral, but every night you had to return the coat. But look at verse 8. They are not, they're even taking the poor off the back. They're taking the garments off the back of the poor. And finally, he says in verse 8, they're drinking wine that has been collected as fines at the expense of the poor. The third thing we see, verses 9 through 12, that God's been good to Israel. God has been good to Israel. Look at verse 9. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, though his height was like the height of cedars, and though he is strong as oaks. I even destroyed his fruit above and his root below, and it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And I led you in the wilderness 40 years that you might take possession of the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons to be prophets and some of your young men to be Nazarites. Is this not so, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. I've been good to you, he says. The Amorites were the inhabitants of Palestine before they take over the land, and they were tall. They were like giants. They were like cedar trees, and yet I delivered you from them. Secondly, don't forget, it was the Exodus. You too were poor. You too were slaves, and I set you free. Don't forget the Exodus, he says. And then for 40 years, I, I took care of you in the desert, he says. And then he says, I called some of your young men to, to live an example as Nazarites to live holy lives. And you made them break their vow by drinking strong drink. And I set others of your sons to be prophets, to, to preach my word, but you have silenced the prophets. Well, the fourth thing we see it's God's response to Israel's rebellion. Look at verses 14 and 16. Flight will perish from the swift, and the stalwart will not strengthen his power, nor the mighty, mighty man save his life. He who grasps a bow will not stand his ground, the swift of foot will not escape, nor will he who rides a horse save his life. Even the bravest among the warriors will flee naked in that day, declares the Lord. Perhaps you remember that Israel looked forward to the great day of the Lord, and they saw this day of the Lord as a time when God would come and punish all of their enemies and exalt them. And what they find out here is that God's going to punish them too. God's going to punish them for their sins. 
So this great day of the Lord they had looked forward to was not going to be a time of celebration, but a time of destruction for most of them. Notice what he says, the swift, verse 14, they won't even be able to outrun my judgment. The strong, he says, the mighty man, verse 14, they won't be strong enough. And then verse 16, even the bravest warriors will have to flee naked because they will be stripped of all their weapons. They will drop them and run. The ancient Israelites could see the sins of all the other nations. And so when Amos arrives from the south, they're probably a little suspect of him over that. And then he starts preaching against their enemies. You get, it's like following a compass, the way that he preaches against these countries. And then he gets all over to their kind of cousins and then even to their brothers, Judah. And it's the seventh sermon. They are amen, hallelujah, let them have it. But then he says, for three sins, for four sins, the way you have treated the poor, the way you have trampled upon the needy, you've sold them for the price of a pair of sandals, you've sexually abused those who were weak in your midst, and you will be held accountable and your most mighty men will not escape judgment. They didn't like Amos so much after that. They failed to recognize their own injustice, their own greed against the poor. Could we be like that ourselves? Do we have that uncanny ability to see the sins in everybody around us, our family, our friends, our acquaintances, even as a nation? Can we see the sins of all other nations and yet fail to see the sins in our own midst? Are we the one who has the log in our eye and yet we feel qualified to help our neighbor who has nothing but a mere speck. We laugh at old gopher, but have we ever appeared in the essence of gopher and said, say there, Sonny, you need to do something about that speech impediment to our neighbor. What if each of us wasn't like the northern kingdom? What if we left today focusing on the sin in our own life, in our own heart? You know, I've got a sneaking suspicion that I like focusing on your shortfalls more than my own because, well, if I can focus on yours, then I won't have to look inside my own heart. If I can focus on where you fall short, I don't have that uncomfortable moment of looking at the blackness in my own soul. For three transgressions and for four, I will punish those who sin, says the Lord. 
What about me? What about you? Dare we quit looking at our husband, our wife, our brother, our sister, our friend, our neighbor? As a nation, dare we quit looking at other nations and ask ourselves, where have we broken covenant with God? Let us pray. Oh God, we have such 2020 vision when we're looking at our neighbor's sin. Yet we can't see the broad side of a barn when we look at our own. Satan has fooled us and we've fallen for it. He has called upon us to focus on sin. He's okay with that as long as we make it somebody else's. Forgive us, O oh God, for I am, we are the people with three transgressions and four. And we ourselves need to come to the cross, confess them to the Christ, and walk away cleansed. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.